So tonight we are dealing with souls and um, the soul and reincarnation and NDE, near-death experiences, where the soul leaves the body and comes back. And tonight, uh, Shi'ur is dedicated, this chut for her Shalema, for Malka Bas Bela. Everyone should please have a reminder in their thoughts. Every single prayer counts. Malka Bas Bela. She has speedy recovery. Amen. Okay. So, let's get started. So, um, the Neshama, Neshama means Neshima, breath. Now we touched on this, um, we, t- we touched on this last week that Hashem blew into Adam and then he became a living soul, right? And when Hashem blew, Hashem's essence came out of him. Hashem's immortal essence came out and went into man. Because when you blow, your essence comes out. It's from deep within inside you. And that's what the Pasuk says. It says, and God formed the man of dust from the ground. And then, nishmas chaim. He blew into him. He blew into his nostrils, the soul, the soul of life. And man became a living being. So, nishmas chaim. So, basically, the first week that we did Monday, a few weeks ago, time is flying. Thank God we had fantastic shurem, discussions, Q&As. Time is flying. But the first week we spoke about Torah, the authenticity of the Torah. We know God took us out of Egypt, took us out of Egypt, and he gave us, um, the ten, he, he, he performed the 10 plagues, splitting of the sea, showed his dominance over all of the world, heaven, earth, and the sea below, and 40 years of accuracy living in, a, in the desert, national revelation at Sinai, all 3 million Jews saw the heavens open up and God spoke to them with Moses together. So the Jews and Moses witnessed God together in the same um, revelation. And therefore we know God, and that's how we know that what we are learning from the Pasukia is accurate because we read discussed authenticity of our Torah a few weeks ago. If you haven't seen that, you can go look at it on the Facebook pages on YouTube, Torah true or false, authenticity of our traditions. So once we know the Torah is true, God's telling us right in the beginning when he created man, I blew a soul into man that gave man life. And the soul is from my essence and therefore it's immortal. The same way God is immortal, <laughs> the soul that God blew into man is an immortal soul. It lives forever. It's a piece of God, so to speak. We also find that the soul has the potential to live forever because what happened was after Adam ate from the tree, the Eitzadas, the tree of, of knowledge, God said, let's get him out of the garden. Why? Because maybe he will eat from the tree of life and he'll live forever. Right? So what did God do? God put, uh, uh, threw him out and put uh, fiery swords on the, on the entrance. So you see that the potential to live forever is a very real potential in the eyes of the Torah. Right? God threw Adam out. Right? And he, he left his, his spiritual existence where he sort of lived with God without uh, death. But once he sinned, God threw him out of the garden and he became a physical body. And the potential, and therefore God didn't want him to eat from the tree of uh, uh, the tree of life because he might live forever. So you see, the idea of living forever is very much um, part of our tradition. I'm actually going through tonight in order. We're starting with the sources in the Torah and the Tanakh and the Talmud for the soul. What's the sources for the soul? Then we're going to talk about the soul's function, how the soul functions and operates. 
Then we're going to talk about the scientific research that's being done out of Virginia University for the last 50 years about this topic. Then we're going to try and get to near-death experiences known as NDEs, near-death experiences, where the body leaves the soul, clinical death, and re-enters. Then we're going to try and discuss the soul's journey after death and um, talk about the external observation of the soul, how we can observe the soul externally, just from our own personal standpoint, uh, um, how we can observe it. Hopefully we'll have time, we'll get to reincarnation. And if we have enough time, the makeup of the soul. So we have a lot to get through, we'll see how much we can. It's a lot of topics, but I'm going in order. So we find evidence for the soul after Abraham dies and, and, and after Moshe dies and Aaron dies. Every time the Pasuk tells us, and he was gathered unto his people which is a strange thing to say because Moses and Aaron, they died in the middle of, Moses died in the middle of the desert, wasn't allowed to enter the land. Aaron died alone. We don't even know where they're buried. They weren't taken to their people, literally in, in, in a physical sense, to the cemetery. So the notion that whenever someone passed away, the Torah says they were gathered upon, unto their people is telling us that their soul is going back, right, to, in the world to come, to all the other souls in the afterlife. They gathered to their people. Now, <clears throat> we find fascinating story with evidence of the soul from the book of Shmuel, Samuel 1. What's happening here is that Shaul HaMelech, Saul, the king Saul, he did not listen to God's instructions to wipe out Amalek. Amalek was like the Nazi Germany of the time. They were out to kill and destroy the Jewish people. And God gave King Saul a commandment to go and destroy them. And he didn't listen. He brought home uh, their women and the, and, the, and the slaves and the, and the cattle and etc. And the king, he didn't kill the king, he had to kill the king. And he had to kill the cattle, even though his intentions were to bring sacrifices to God and, and give praise to God for, for, for making it successful. But God's command was to not bring that, that, the stuff back, to kill the king and kill the animals, etc. So therefore, Hashem was upset. He was angry with Shaul. And he was going to give the Jewish kingdom and the lineage of, of, of the Mashiach to King David and King David's descendants. This story happens where Shaul knows that his end is near, right? Hashem is angry with him. He, he, he sinned. And the Pelishtim are gathering to attack the Jewish army in Gilboa. And Shaul sees the, the Pelishtim camp, the Philistine camp, and he, and he trembles. He gets terrified. So he asks Hashem, right? They used to have the Choshen on the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. It had the the stones for each shavit with the entire Aleph base on it, the, the, the 22 letters. And it would flash, a bit like a computer screen and send messages. So he asked the Urimatumim, but he didn't get a response. So then he tried to ask a prophet, he didn't get a response. He tried in a dream, he didn't get a response. So basically God is uh, ignoring, he's muting, like we say on WhatsApp, he's muting Shoal. He don't want to speak to you. So what does Shoal do as the last resort? He goes and he tries to find a woman who practices necromancy, basically contacts the dead, which is 100% possible, but forbidden according to the Torah. There are many things that are, that are possible, but are forbidden according to the Torah, right? So it's possible to steal, but the Torah is not allowed to. So contacting the dead is definitely a real possibility, nevertheless, if you know what you're doing. Nevertheless, the Torah forbids it. They went to rely on God and not try to dictate the future. So Shaul goes to this woman, he finds the woman, and he dresses up, he disguises himself as if he's not the king, and he comes in and he says, okay, I need you to call somebody from the dead for me. Wake somebody up. And she's like, don't you know that King Saul has destroyed, wiped out all of the sorcerers, all of the magicians from the land of Israel because it's against the Torah. And he said, don't worry, I'm, 
I'm, I'm, I, I, I give you my word, I am not here to uh, set you up. She didn't know a shawl, but he, he's told her, I'm not going to get you in trouble, and you need to tell me. So she, he said, she says, who do you want to speak to? And he says, I want to speak to Shmuel. Shmuel Halili, bring down Shmuel. And this uh, woman who's calling down Shmuel got very scared, and she screamed because she realized that this was the king soul, King Shol. It was King Shol standing in front of her. And she got a shock of her life. Why, why are you trying to fool me? You're King Shol. And the king reassured her, don't worry. I'm not here to, I'm not here to trap you. Even though I passed the law, you're not allowed to practice um, any more necromancy. But I'm not here to trap you. So she then called down Shmuel. And Shol asked Shmuel, what is going to happen tomorrow with the war? Because I'm terrified the Philistines are ganged up on me in the camp. And they're coming to attack, and I'm very, very scared, and God is ignoring me. So Shmuel tells him, if God is ignoring you, what are you waking me up and disturbing me from my bed, from my sleep? God is ignoring you for a reason. What's wrong with you? Shmuel tells Shaul that it's your fault because you didn't listen to Hashem. You sinned with, with a Molech. You didn't follow Hashem's commandments. And therefore, um, Hashem's going to wipe you out tomorrow. You and your sons are going to join me on this side. Hashem will give the kingship to your friend, David, because they listened to Hashem. Then got very, very scared. He wouldn't, he fell over. He wouldn't eat anything. And the woman tried to, to, to reassure him and to feed him, etc., etc. But to cut a long story short, the next day he went to war. He got killed and his son got killed. And they met Shmuel on the other side. So very clearly we see the dead are very much alive and they can be contacted, although we're not meant to be contacting them. We have a similar story over here with King David. Can I ask a question? Yeah, yeah go on. Okay, so I know you said that you're not supposed to contact the dead. Absolutely. But are you allowed to contact the dead to just to say hello? No. Okay, not at all. Like nothing no. at all. No. Okay. Not allowed, to, not allowed to contact the dead. At all. But honouring honouring dead is okay, yeah, yeah. but not contacting not them. Not waking them up. Oh, no, no, but you can yeah. talk to them and whatever, but not expect yeah, yeah, answer. Yeah, 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 that's okay. When I, when I mean wake up, I mean bring them down. Uh, oh, no, like, I Like, it's, there's a name for it when they get the board. A Ouija board. Ouija boards, yeah. That, you're not allowed to wake up the dead and disturb them or try to work out a particular future. For Jews, are meant to trust in God. Yes. It's a biblical commandment. We're not allowed to engage in stuff. Now, the second story happens over here. Uh, King David, he sends Uriah to war and he takes his wife Bathsheba. So Hashem gets angry at him. Hashem gets angry at him. Why? Because Hashem says to him, why did you take the wife of Uriah to you? To cut a long story short, we're not going into the story, but what happened was, is that Nosson was a Novi, the prophet, Nathan the prophet, and um, David married Bathsheba, and um, Uriah went to war, and he got killed, so David married Bathsheba. So she wasn't a married woman when he took her. Yeah, but the soldiers each gave their wives... Um, bills of divorce before they left the war. So there was no problem of married woman, but it was the wrong thing to do because it wasn't the right time to, he shouldn't have sent him to the front lines to get killed and take his wife. Nevertheless, he married Bathsheba and he had a kid. Now this kid got sick. It was a baby. Baby got sick. And the baby is, is on the deathbed. And David HaMelech, King David, calls Nathan the prophet to try and help to pray. And Nathan the prophet tells him that this child is going to die because you have sinned in the eyes of God. And even though God's not going to kill you because you have repented, because David repented, he owned up to his sin. He said, I sinned for Hashem, he did Shuvah. So therefore he mitigated, uh, he, he negated a lot, of the, a, lot of the, a lot of the punishment. Nevertheless, this first child from this union, which was a union which shouldn't have happened the way it happened, Hashem said, it, it can't, you know, we can't allow that. So the child was about to die. So... David fasts for seven days, King David fasts for seven days, and he doesn't eat, and he cries, and he beseeches God, and he dovens, and he's requesting and asking, 
And in the end, the child passes away. And, and the servants are scared to tell King David the child passed away because they were terrified that the king is going to be so uh, upset at them. David notices that their faces are turning sour and he realizes that the son passed away. He says, tell me, tell me, it's fine, tell me. They told him. And straight away, he got up. He gets up on the floor. He changes his clothes. He, he showers. And he goes to Hashem and he eats. And he says, as long as my child was sick, I tried, I fasted, whatever I could. Now he's gone. That's God's will. And that he accepts it 100%. David says the following sentence. So Atom Mace, now the child's dead. Why am I going to continue to fast and be sad? Can I, can I bring him back? I will end up going to him. But he won't return to me. So King David is saying, I will go to my son when I pass on. We'll be together again. No question about it. But he won't come back now because he's passed on. So we see again that although the child had died, that wasn't it. That's just the soul leaving the clothing, which we call the body, and going the eternal soul, the immortal soul, the part of God that lives on forever, is going to be reunited with his father when David passes on. And I'm just going to quote one or two verses from King Solomon in Koheles. All go to the same place, all originate from dust, and all return to dust. Who perceives that the spirit of man is the one that ascends on high, while the spirit of the beast is the one that ascends down to earth. So we discussed this uh, last week. A human soul goes back to God in heaven, in Shamayim, but the animal soul goes back to the earth. We see clearly from King Solomon, when a person dies, the human soul goes up to heaven. And then again, we find the same thing in Koheles, chapter 12, 7. The dust returns to the ground as it was. The dust meaning the person is made from dust, right? Adam Afar, a person is made from dust. The dust returns to the earth as it was. But, and the spirit, the neshama, returns to God who gave it. And then, and then King Solomon says, futility of futilities, all is futile, right? All is futile. And, and he says, he finishes the entire, the entire book, entire sefer, he finishes just a few verses later. That's, that's verse 8. And verse 13, he finishes, the sum of the matter. When all has been considered, fear God and keep his commandments, for that is man's whole duty. For God will judge every deed, even everything hidden, whether good or evil. So what he's saying is, is that the soul goes up, the body goes back to the ground, into the dust, and anything that is connected to God, anything that is connected, we spoke last week about the Torah, meaning the Torah is God's wisdom. God put his wisdom in the Torah. And when we learn Torah, we are engaging in God's knowledge, in God's wisdom. So we're becoming one with God because God's knowledge and God's will are one with God. God is total unity, right? So therefore his knowledge and his wisdom is an integral part of his essence, part of him. It's all one unity. So when we take God's knowledge and we put that knowledge in our mind, we're becoming one with God. When we put God's commandments into practice and give God's will expression through keeping the commandments, we become one with God. That oneness is stored on our SIM card, our consciousness, which lives on forever. And that is the spirit that goes back to God and that will live with God forever. So ever similar we are to God will stay forever. All the things that we do that are not similar to God, just that are like dust things, Eat, like just eating, drinking, playing, whatever it is, things that are not connected to God's will, if they're not done the way that's connected to God's will, they don't become part of 
God's eternity. They don't, they, don't, they don't connect to God God's past eternity. They're just like a dead fly in the wall, which exists, but then it just decays, goes to the ground as if it never existed. So we want to make sure we're part of God's, we join God's infinite state. And we say this also because we say the Torah is Eitz Chaim, He, we say on, but when we take the Torah, yeah, when we take the Torah, put the Torah back, Eitz Chaim, He, it's a tree of life to those who, who, who hold on to it, to grab it, connect to it. Tree of life, why? Because God is the internal life. God is the source of all life. A leaf wants to be free from the tree and it breaks away. How long is it free for? A day, two days, it's, it's dancing in the wind, you know, it's going clubbing, you know, shaking. And then what happens? It's disconnected from its life source and it withers and it dies. So anyone who disconnects from God can be free for a very short period of time. It could even be for their life. But in the context of eternity, the life is a very short time. It's the once in a lifetime, once in eternity chance to be connected to the tree of life, the source of life. And which whatever is connected and is a part, comes part of the source of life, lives on forever. It's like um, the Hasidic masters say in two ways. One is, is that we say uh, uh, God is, is the infinite light. So if you take a candle, flickering candle, like it says, uh, King Solomon writes, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam. A uh, human soul is like a flickering candle of God. Flickering candle, right? And we always like, so someone in your sight, we light a flickering candle. The soul is like a candle. Um, <clears throat> so if you take a flickering candle and put it next to a big, big, big bonfire, the bonfire is going to put out, extinguish a little, little flickering candle. But if you take two big balls of fire and put them together, it's going to turn into a raging fire. So our role is that our soul, the way we got it, it's just a flickering candle. But what, is, what does it say? Ner or. Mitzvot are considered to be little candles and Torah are considered to be fires and lights. So we go through our whole lifetime gathering in, gathering in, performing more mitzvot, more Torah. We're gathering lots of lights, lots of candles, lots of balls of fire, and our soul is being lit up. Literally, literally being up with God's light. So when we pass away, if our soul is a big ball of light, it can connect to God. But if we try to return our soul the way we got it, as an empty soul, with no mitzvot, no Torah, no fire, no candles, just one little candle that we got, then when it gets up, it's going to be extinguished by God's infinite blinding light. So we have to make sure throughout our life to become similar to God and be that ball of fire, like him, and then we can join forces. Another way they put it is, the Hasidic masters, imagine you take a drop of water, drop of water out the ocean, and you put it on the table. What's going to happen? It's going to evaporate, right? It's free, free from the ocean. Independence. For how long? Independence, maybe for an hour, maybe for a night, and then in the morning it's evaporated. But if you put the same drop of water back in the mighty ocean, what happens? It becomes, oh, the everlasting ocean, Right? It lives on forever. So it's not, it's, it has a reverse effect. It actually has life now forever, everlasting life, because it's connected to its source, right? Perfect. Now, we're moving on to the soul's function. So we spoke last week about this, that the human consciousness, according to Judaism and Kabbalah and all the Jewish sources in the Torah, the, Jew, the human consciousness comes from the soul. The soul can see, the soul can hear, the soul can think much more than the body. The body expresses the soul's ability to think, feel, see, etc. But the body limits the soul's ability. While the soul's in the body, it limits the, the, the um, soul's ability to hear and see and think. 
So the human consciousness comes from the soul and it's filtered and expressed through the mind and body. But the body's organs, the mind, the ears, limit the seeing, hearing and conscious awareness of the soul. When we die, we have true consciousness. We're much more aware. We find the first day of creation that God created light and darkness, but there was no sun and moon until day four. So what type of light are we talking about? So the commentaries all explain, we're talking about a spiritual light of the first day. The light of the first day was a light of perception, like God's revelation, perception, lighting up spiritual worlds with which one could experience the vision of God. And he set this light aside for the righteous in the world to come. And this is what the the Hasidic master, Rebbe Melech, explains the world to come, meaning in each generation we have righteous tzaddikim, Kabbalists, Hasidic masters, who are totally spiritual, totally connected to the higher levels of their soul, to a higher consciousness. They tap into that revelation, that light, and they're able to see things through to the vision of the soul, the eyes of the soul that the eyes can't see. That is why people go to great tzaddikim, very righteous people like Ben Ishchai, Babasali, very great people, for help. If someone is sick, they ask them for a bracha. Uh, if someone uh, can't find the shidduch, if um, someone's having, uh, God forbid, terrible challenges, right? They go to tzaddik. Why? Because the tzaddik can see with, the, uh, he has a, 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 an expanded consciousness where he can see through the eyes of the soul things that we can't see. Now, this may sound a little bit metaphysical for some people, right? So I'm going to bring in now the scientific research, which might shock a lot of you listening right now, the, the, the University of Virginia has been studying this for almost 50 years. Their faculty is called the Division of Perceptual Studies, and it's been run since 60, 1967, and the current professor is a guy by the name of Jim Tucker. On their websites, when they talk about what they're about, they say, the following at the division of perceptual studies we believe that a revolution in intellectual history is taking shape and we have a unique role to play in bringing it to fruition current mainstream science and philosophy portray mind personality and consciousness as nothing more than byproducts of brain activity encased within our skulls and vanishing at death through its research the dops this department, strives to challenge this entrenched mainstream view by rigorously evaluating empirical evidence suggesting that consciousness survives death and that mind and brain are distinct and separable. Your mind, your consciousness gives consciousness to the mind, not the other way around. It's not that your brain gives consciousness and when you die, finished. No. The consciousness comes from outside your mind. It's separate to your mind. And we are not alone. Growing numbers of scientists and philosophers are becoming convinced that the prevailing physicalist picture is fundamentally flawed and that science urgently needs to extend in directions that allow it to accommodate genuine spiritual experience without loss of scientific integrity. So basically, they have done over 50 years thousands of cases of scientific analysis and research where through knee-death experiences, people leaving their body, people, um, people dying, coming back, people having clinical deaths that all leave their body. And they, uh, some of them go through the experience of going through the tunnel, hearing the sound of water, um, 
being drawn to the light, seeing their relatives, going through the, the life judgment process, watching their life play out in front of them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they have they have thousands of cases, and through scientific research, they 100 uh, percent claim the University of Virginia that the same thing that Kabbalah has been saying for 3,000 years, that Torah has been saying for 3,000 years, and Kabbalah has been saying for thousands of years. Now. This is the last work of Dr. Brian, Dr. Brian Weiss, which who wrote a book, Many Lives, Many Masters, and Dr. Raymond Mooney, who wrote a book, Life After Life. And Dr. Peter Fenwick actually wrote, I'm going to read this to you. He's also researched the entire topic. What's more, according to Fenwick, our consciousness tricks us into perceiving a false duality of self and other, where in fact, there is only unity. There's only one God's unity. We are not separate from other aspects of the universe but an integral and inextricable part of them. And when we die, we transcend the human experience of consciousness and its illusion of duality and merge with the universe's entire and unified property of consciousness. So ironically, only in death can we be fully conscious. So he's saying exactly what we say in the Kabbalah, that the soul is the source of the mind and the brain's consciousness. The consciousness comes from the soul and the body limits the soul's ability to see. But when the soul departs from the body, it gets expanded levels of consciousness. Now, Dr. Brian Weiss, actually, he was very skeptical about all this. And he only came across this whole worldview accidentally when he was conducting um, many sessions of hypnosis. And one particular patient he, he was treating for 18 months was a Catholic woman who he treated in 1981. At this point, he was a very uh, skeptical agnostic. And after 18 months of treating her under hypnosis, she had tapped into multiple past life experiences. That was one thing. But suddenly, um, on this one day, there was like a cold energy in the room, like an ice cold energy. And she started telling him, there are people here to see you. Now, he's a clinical, you know, a, a psychologist treating this, this patient. And she's telling him stuff. There are people here to see him. He's like, How could, what, what could that be? So she tells him that your father is here who died of heart problems. And your daughter is named after him. And we have to remember that this was not only before the times of the internet. You couldn't Google it. But there wasn't even an obituary, obituary of him. And she was recalling details that nobody knew. He's not a religious Jew, but his father's name was Abraham, his Hebrew name. And his daughter was called Amy after, after the father. And um, she then told him something even more spine-chilling. And then she said to him that your son is here. He's tiny. His heart is turned backwards. He had died in 1971. So um, this is 10 years earlier. Only after 23 days, he was a little infant, 23-year-old infant. And... And and she was describing the rare congenital defects um, that he had experienced, which not even the family members of Dr. Brian Weiss were aware of. So these were details that was impossible for anyone. And this shook him because he was um, a very skeptical agnostic. And suddenly this woman is challenging his entire worldview, which is basically that, as we said before, that this world is it. There's nothing outside of this world. Physicalists. Right? There's nothing outside of this, outside the physical. So that took, put him on a journey and he interviewed thousands of cases, researched out cases, and he wrote a book called Many Lives, Many Masters, and he should definitely uh, research it. By the way, I'm using a book tonight, Soul Searching by Jakob Esther, and he brings down many, many, many cases and explains how they totally reinforce what the Kabbalah has already been saying for thousands of years and all the Jewish sources have been saying for thousands of years. Although we don't need their confirmation to what we know from the Torah, 
But it's very fascinating that, that science only today is coming to the conclusion that we knew for thousands of years. And this book from Arya Kaplan, the anthology, is a brilliant book that I get a lot of information from. It's actually four books in one. You can see If You Are God, The Infinite Light, The Real Messiah, and The 13 Principles of Faith. It's an, a brilliant book about heaven, hell, afterlife, etc. So if you want to buy it, it's in gold. So there's two volumes, one about Shabbat, a Jerusalem, Tefillin. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Mikvah, absolutely mind-blowing. I recommend that book as well. Okay, moving on. We're going to talk about the soul's journey after it departs the body. So what happens is the soul, after it leaves the body, it enters into a state of confusion and it hovers over the body. It hovers over the body because it's disoriented. Okay, so what happens is that it's in a surreal state of a dreamlike state because when a person dreams and they wake up, like in a dream, anything can happen. Yeah, be two places at once. You can fit through a tiny window. It's like in a dream, anything happens. So suddenly the body, the soul is a body and, 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 and the soul's like, what's going on? And the soul thinks like, I'm in a dream. And the soul really thinks it's in a dream. So therefore the soul is like continuously trying to work out what's going on, why it can't get back in. And most of our customs in Judaism are more for the soul and it's metapsychological states, right? Because the soul sees, hears, and feels a lot of psychological pain. We're mostly focused on soul than on the mourners because the soul is keenly cognizant of what's going on around it. And therefore we have to treat the body with utmost respect. All of the laws that we have, you know, that you're not allowed to perform. Uh, someone has to be with the body the whole time, every until it's buried. We can't leave the person until the body is, is, is buried. We have to have, always have someone with the, with the soul, with the body. Someone guarding a shomer. Why? Because the soul is struggling and it feels a sense of abandonment and it's very desolate and lonely at the time of leaving the body. We also have a custom that when the Hevra Kedisha, those that are, that are going through the Tahara process, they, they take this, the body, the deceased body to the mikvah. Even if there's no one there, just one person doing it, he has to ask forgiveness. Why? It seems strange. But because the soul is there watching and listening and, and experiencing everything. And what happens is, is that we have seven days of the Shiva and those seven days the soul is hovering in a state of confusion bouncing between the worlds not understanding it understands it's a soul slowly tries to go up to heaven but then it bounces back to its home to the to its grave not to the house of the Shiva where it's so familiar where it, where it spent its whole life so we that's how we, we we do Shiva seven days and then we have the Shloshim after 30 days but this corresponds to seven day uh, Avelot the seven day Shiva the 30 days Shloshim and the 11 months of, of mourning correspond to the levels of the soul's experience where the soul is gradually finding its way and realizing and re-identifying with its true self. So the more a person identifies as material, physical body, the harder their transition process is, they call it kafakela, the harder transition process is to transition to the heavenly spiritual worlds. Great Sadikim, the Talmud says, was like taking a hair out of a cup of milk. The transition was so smooth. Rabbi Nachman said he was looking forward to it. Rabbi Miller, looking forward to it. Why? Because they weren't in a, they didn't identify in this body. They weren't, uh, um, they weren't, they didn't consider themselves to be the animal of the body. Their body was simply a tool to express the light of their soul. So whatever they did, it was a soul expression. If they ate, it was a soul finding expression through eating to serve God. If they looked, it was a kosher things. It was a Torah. It was at, to help people to do charity and chesed. It was expression of the soul, their eyes. Their, view, their viewing of the world was an expression of the soul's sight, right? The eyes were, were, were just being used as a tool for the soul to find expression. And the same thing with every part of their body. Whatever they did, they were with their wife, they were with their kids. 
It was just an expression of the soul. But unfortunately, if we use our bodily limbs and our bodily parts for our own pleasures, for our own superficial, you know, uh, indulgences and uh, just our impulses, right? We eat because we want to eat a seven-layer cake. We, whatever it is, we just want to do whatever we want. Then we really identify with our body, not with our soul. And then that leads to great confusion when a person dies. And I explained this last week. Imagine you go to the dentist with plaque on your tooth. It's inseparable, the plaque from the tooth, right? Unless it gets scratched up by a dentist, which is extremely painful, it's, in, it's, it's, it's inseparable. So when a person dies, he, he thinks, you know, that all of the tooth with the plaque is him until he goes through the process of the cosmic cleansing and they separate the plaque from the tooth, separate the soul from the body, so to speak, the soul from its bodily you know, performances that were not done in in a, in a soul expression, they have to be cleansed. Okay, moving on. So I, have a quick, I yeah. don't understand. Why wouldn't the soul know that it's, if the body's dead, yeah. I don't quite, wouldn't the soul know that? No, it takes time. It takes time for the soul to realize over the seven days, when it first leaves, it's completely confused over what's going on. By the funeral, the soul's in a surreal, the funeral is surreal. A person is in a dreamy state trying to wa- work out whether he's a soul or a body. And I'm going to read you something um, to, to explain you this. the soul is connected to Hashem. So I, I don't quite yeah, get why yeah, exactly. the soul doesn't realize that the body is dead and, and to go up to Hashem. Because the soul is connected to Hashem, but the soul is multi-layered. There's five layers to the soul. Right. And the part that's connected to Hashem is not part of the human consciousness. Generally speaking, unless you're a big tzaddik, you haven't tapped into that part. Yeah. The part that's connected to you is the part that, that is able to bridge the gap between the heavenly world and the physical world. That's what we say every single morning. We say, Thank you, Hashem, that you return my soul. Why? Because the third layer of the soul, the third one is the bridging one that bridges the bottom level of the soul that's in the body, the bodily soul, bodily life force, animalistic life force, but the soul's expression, to the higher levels of Chayin which are only for great rights people who can, who can actually tap into them. So the part of the soul that lives in the body, it identifies with the body, it lives in the body, it's connected to the body for 70, 80, 90, 120 years. So when the soul leaves, it's like when you go to sleep at night or when, you, or when a prophet experienced a prophetic vision. They were able to, you know, get out of the body, right? Or, or astral travel, right? Get out of the body, but then come back in. You go to bed, every night we go to bed, go to sleep, and we say in the morning prayer, the soul you gave me is pure, and you returned it to me. Every morning we say, and you returned it to me. Thank you for returning it to me. So the same way when you go to sleep, the soul returns. You do astral travel, the soul returns. You go into a state of prophecy or, or deep consciousness, meditation, or whatever it is, the soul returns. In, in the first three to seven days, the Medrash teaches us, Pirkei the soul thinks it's in a dreamy state. But if the, if you always identify as a soul and you're very, very sensitive, then you straight away understand what's happening. The soul is now leaving the body because you don't feel like you're a body. But if you identify as a body, then the soul is very confused. He thinks the body's having a dream. And actually, we're going to read something to explain that from here. So you're saying that the soul, when we sleep, the soul leaves the body? Yes, that's right. Okay. And you see the soul is the body. But I thought that the soul would understand that. No, it doesn't. Okay, so... It's like a dream. Things should pass. Jacques just said a really good comment. I don't know if everyone online heard it. So what did you just say? You just said that the soul is living with the body for so long that it just thinks it's one with the body. So when the body dies... That's right, exactly right. It's like... Exactly right, Jacques. Thank you. 
yeah. it's still stuck to yeah. I, I, I'll tell you what happens. This is a story that one of the one of the um, one of the patients that that had this experience described their experience the following. The next thing I knew, I was in a room, crouched in a corner of the ceiling. I could see my body below me. I could see the doctors and nurses working on me. My my doctor was there, and so was Sandy, one of the nurses. I heard Sandy say, I wish we didn't have to do this. I wondered what they were doing. I heard a doctor say, stand back. And then he pushed the button, which sent an electrical shock through the body. Suddenly, I was back inside my body. One minute, I was looking down at my face. I could see the tops of the doctor's heads. After he pushed the button, I was suddenly looking into the doctor's face. So that was the out-of-body experience that she experienced on the operating table. And then they obviously pressed the deliberator and boom, back in the body. So she didn't know what's going on. It's like, I'm dreaming, right? She's thinking she's going to wake up. She's going to wake up. So for three to seven days, the soul thinks, maybe I'm going to wake up. Maybe I'm going to wake up. Again, if you're a tzaddik, you're a righteous person, you're a very, you're, you're a fine, you character, you're very godly, very spiritual, very much emulating God, similar to God, and you're able in your lifetime to experience this high, to experience high levels of consciousness, then you are familiar with the difference between the soul at the body and the soul in the body. But most of us who don't t- tap into those high levels of anashama, the expanded conscious, consciousness, for us, it's very, very confusing. So as we continue, what happens is, is that the soul goes, it watches its, it watches its whole funeral. It sees everybody crying. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it feels and hears everything. The, lights are, the light is very important because the soul is compared to light. And we said before that the Ne'er Hashem Nishrat Adam, a flickering light, is the soul's a flickering light. And therefore we light a Yotzat candle, the soul's attracted to the light and the soul revisits the world and it gets pleasure from the light of the Yotzat candle. That's how we use the light. And all these things that we do, we rip the, why do we rip our, our garments? When we have, when the, when the, when the people, the mourners, they have to rip their, their shirts. Why? Because we're, we're showing the soul that's watching. The soul, the soul is with us. We're showing the soul. You've been ripped, your soul's been ripped out of the body. Extremely painful experience for someone who's, who's unfortunately not righteous. So we're going to rip our garments to show that we're going to, we're going to mimic what you're going through. We're going to identify with your suffering and your pain. So basically, unlike the non-Jewish world, Everything that we do, not performing autopsy, not cutting up the body, burying the body straight away, acting with tremendous dignity towards the body, um, never leaving the body side. Why? Because it's all about the dead person, the soul. It's not about us. Of course, there are things for us emotionally. We sit shiva together and all the community visit us, but it's primarily for the soul because the soul lives on and the soul is here and the soul is watching and the soul hears and feels everything. So we act with tremendous care and sensitivity. Even, I said before, the Karagdisha, when they're burying the soul, when they're doing Tahara, they have to ask forgiveness, even if no one else is there. Continuing on, then the soul sees the light. It sees the light. It gets drawn to the light. It sees all its friends and family, all the souls. And it comes before God, and it sort of basks in God's light. So I'm going to read you something from, from the book here, page 74, Soul Searching. This is someone who had an NDE, a near-death experience, clinical death. Next thing I knew, I was standing in a mist, and I knew immediately that I had died. The mist started being infiltrated with enormous light. And the light just got brighter and brighter. And it's so bright, but it doesn't hurt your eyes. But it's brighter than anything you've ever encountered in your whole life. At that point, I had no consciousness anymore of having a body. It was just pure consciousness. And this enormously bright light seemed to cradle me. I just seemed to exist in it and be part of it and be nurtured by it. And the feeling just became more and more ecstatic and glorious and perfect. And everything about it was, if you took 1,000 best things that ever happened to you in your life and multiplied it by a million, maybe you could get close to that feeling. I don't know, but you're just engulfed by it. 
and you begin to know a lot of things, the wisdom of the soul, right? I remember I knew that everything, everywhere in the universe was okay, that the plan was perfect, God's plan was perfect, that whatever was happening, the wars, famine, whatever, was okay. Everything was perfect. And the whole time I was in that state, I was just an infinite being knowing that you're home forever, that you're safe forever, and that everybody else was. So this is what one of the patients described after having the near-death experience. Now let's contrast that to what Rabbi Eliyahu Desla says from the Mishnah of Eliyahu, from the Jewish literature. Identical. Right, that's what wrote this many, many years before her, decades, decades, decades before her. Regarding this aphorism, <clears throat> we say that the pleasure, better one moment of pleasure in the hereafter than all pleasure of this world. Okay, so the next world can't be compared. No pleasure in this world can be compared to the, to the afterlife. Regarding this aphorism, a Jewish scholar of note explained, if you took all the happiest moments in your past and added to that all the happiest moments in your future and added to that all the happiest moments of your neighbor's life, and added to that all the happiest moments of each member of your community's life, and added to that all the happiest moments of each member of your entire generation, the whole world, and added to that all the happiest moments of every human being who has ever lived and who ever will live, the whole world, since the beginning of time, all the pleasures, you will not even approach the pleasure of one moment of the hereafter. So it's amazing how, how the contrast is so strikingly similar to what we saw from the patient who experienced this. Now, I'm going to jump here. We'll talk about the life review because what happens is a person goes, they make it through to the other world. A person's soul goes through the seven days, 30 days, and it goes up and goes up. 11 months, it's in. It's straight after 11 months. It should be finished its time if it had to get the cosmic cleansing, and then it goes up. Now, there's always a very, very, very tiny, tiny, the lowest part of the soul that stays by its gravesite which is there uh, and will be resurrected, we know, which is why it's so important to have a respectable burial and to have a, uh, we, we do the um, we do uh, the tombstone, we do the um, consecration, thank you. It's very important that that's a very nice, recogni- recognizable gravesite and, and, and tombstone so that the soul, the lower level of the soul, can feel its sense of peace and being at home. And after it goes up, it gets, it has the life review. It sees the light, goes into a tunnel, and we and then it has a life review. Now listen to what one patient, how one patient experienced it and described their experience. I was it was like I knew everything that was stored in my brain. That was last week. Your brain is conscious, wide open, right? And you already know stored in my brain. Everything I'd ever known about from the beginning of my life, I immediately knew about. And also, what was kind of scary was that I knew everybody else in the room knew. I knew, and there was no hiding anything. The good times, the bad times, everything. Everyone knew everything. I had a total clear knowledge of everything. I realized that there are things that every person is sent to earth to realize and learn. Every single thing that you do in your life is recorded and that even though you pass it by not thinking at the time, it will always come up later. For instance, you may be at spotlight and you're in a hurry and the lady in front of you, when the light turns green, doesn't take right off. She doesn't notice the light and you get upset and start honking on beep, beep, beep and telling her, hurry, hurry, hurry. Those are the little kind of things that are recorded that you don't realize at the time, but are really important. Okay? So basically, the whole life was in front of her because the, the, the mind, when the person passes on, the consciousness is the memory card. It's a SIM card. It stores all of your experiences, your creativity, your imagination, your memories. And then when a person dies, the wide is mind open. The consciousness is, is, is wide open because the brain, which is the tool to limit the soul's expression, 
and the soul's consciousness. It limits the consciousness of the soul. Now that, that reducing valve is gone. Person's not longer in the body. The, the mind, the, the consciousness, the soul, which stores all the information, the SIM card is wide open for everyone to see. And the person self-judges himself because he can see his, everything is there and everyone can see and all the bad experiences, no one to hide. That is the, 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 the burning shame, the burning fire is what we call of hell metaphorically. And 11 months of that embarrassment and of that regret is the cosmic cleansing that takes the plaque off the tooth. Takes, it takes away the sins and the damage, the blackening of the soul. The soul then um, remains just a ball of fire, which is similar to God, without all the stains on it. The most important thing I learned from this experience, she says, was that I'm responsible for, I'm responsible for everything that I do. <clears throat> Excuses and avoidance were impossible when I was reviewing my life. And not only that, I saw that responsibility is not bad in the least. It's funny that my failings have become very dear to me in a way because they are my failings. I'm going to learn from them. Everything you have done is there in the review for you to evaluate. And as unpleasant as some parts of it are for you to see, it feels so good to get it all out. When I was there in that review, there was no covering up. I was the very people that I hurt and I was the very people I helped to feel good. I wish I could find some way to convey to everyone how good it feels to know that you are responsible. It's the most liberated feeling in the world. So she says that she felt like the people she hurt were her. The people that she did kindness to were her. Why? Because there's the idea of, of independence from God, right, is only in our perception when God conceals his light in this world of duality. But when a person leaves his body and his soul becomes back into God's unity and into the absolute consciousness, right? The one simple light, God's consciousness. So then when you hurt someone in this world, you're really hurting yourself because there is no division in the next world. It's all one. It's all one part. It's all God's unity. So really a person's hurting himself. And that's what we mean when we say all Jewish people are one, right? When you hurt another Jew, call each other there. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all part of one family. It's like we're hurting our own arm. We, we embarrass another Jew. It's like we're embarrassing ourselves. We also find that when people pass on, it seems like the world subconsciously is really where everyone has a soul. As much as people try to deny it, we're going to wrap this up, but I'm going to finish um, by saying as much as people try to deny it, what do we say at every funeral? Do we say how many cars you had, how many boats you had, how much money is in his bank right now? No, never. We say, even if the most secular person, how many good deeds they did, how much charity they gave, the legacy they left behind the great work that they had children, they built a beautiful family, they were a great member of the community, contributed to the, to the, to the society, et cetera, et cetera. We always say all the mitzvot and, and the good deeds that they did. Why? If there's only a body, why do they care? Why do people care about their legacy? Why do they care about leaving children, leaving a legacy, donating to charity after they die? Right? Why do hardened criminals suddenly just one moment to the next get this sudden urge to, to turn their entire life around? Right? Why do we get certain triggered feelings when we see a beautiful sunset, listen to a beautiful composition, you know, listen to music? Why? Our soul gets stirred, right? A stirring up of our soul. When we do good things, we feel good about it. So we see lots of external observation of the soul and they trigger the way we feel. We get embarrassed when we perform bodily functions. If we were only a body, why would we be embarrassed when we perform our bodily functions? Like who cares? We're only a body. So from all the stuff we mentioned, we can see that the soul is very, very precious. And we say every morning, thank you, God, for returning our soul. And our job is to return our soul full of light. And if we do that, we come one with God. But if we don't finish that, then Judaism sees reincarnation as a gift to come back and try and fix something that you did wrong. And you, that would be happening in for multiple reasons. It could happen because they did something wrong and they have to fix it. They could 
be because they have to complete something that they haven't fixed. It could be for, to fix it. It could be for a transgression. It could be to guide others, to marry their soulmates. So there are reasons to do creation, but we don't believe in it. It's not that just everything, everyone automatically gets reincarnated. A person, if he does what he's meant to do, goes straight to heaven. But if he, if he, if he stole from someone or he offended someone or he, he has to help people, then he may be reincarnated, right? That's how reincarnation works. At the end of the day, it says in the Mishnah, every Jew, every Jew is going to have a place in the world to come. Their soul is going to live forever. As it says, they're all righteous. Yeah, that's So therefore, basically, um, everyone's going to get there. The question is how, right? We can either get there. That's what the Shari'ah writes. Everyone's going to get the question is how. We can get there by doing the right thing, becoming similar to God, becoming one with God and living on forever inside of God. Or we can live our lives completely separate from God, opposite to God, dissimilar to God by being takers and being indulgers and being wasteful, right? Opposite to God, because God's a giver and, and he, he's not wasteful. He's, he's, he's always creating and giving. And then if we do that, we're like a dead fly in the wall and we go back to, we, we don't live on inside God. Only God's will lives on. Only God's knowledge lives on. So I hope that that's clear to people. And do you have any questions? You said that the soul starts with one little light like a candle. Yes. And it grows. How does it grow? With your good deed or what? Yes. So it's not a literal candle, but it's similar to a, to a candle, metaphorically. Um, but basically, a person gets a holy spiritual flame, a spiritual light. What they do with that light, that light is a blanket. You know, it's an empty uh, slate. It's an empty book. You can then you can then write whatever you want on that on that empty book. So that 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 empty slate, you have to then compile whatever you can. So every time you do a mitzvah, right, or you learn Torah, so then the mitzvot are considered candles, and Torah is considered uh, fire, light, oil, light. So what happens is throughout your lifetime, each time you do charity, and each time you do chesed, and each time you do kindness, and each time you say tehillim, each time you learn the Torah. Right, do the mitzvot, Shabbat, and and lighting Shabbat candles, all this stuff. You're gathering lights and fires and and flames, and they're being stored in your soul. So now your soul went from one flame, which you're just born with, empty book, to lots and lots and lots and lots of fire and flames together, and becoming like a whole big ball of fire, and and coming similar to God. That's why the greater uh, tzaddik you are, the more righteous you are, the more that you are similar to God, the bigger your ball of fire the closer you can be to the ball of light without being totally consumed by it. But the less you are, the smaller you are, the more the big ball of fire is very blinding, metaphorically speaking. I'm 97. How much fire do you think I have in me? Ah, heaps. But there's always chance, every second, there's chance to get more and more mitzvot every day. Mitzvot every second. <laughs> She's a Thank lot. you. And do you believe that the spirits can communicate with us? Absolutely, but um, we're not allowed to engage in that. The Torah says that it's forbidden. It's a biblical commandment that it's forbidden. Because, yeah. because I, um, I, I asked my brother before he died, I said, if I die before you, I will let you know if there is another word. And he said the same thing. He's been dead for seven years. And before he died, he sent me from Israel a kind of um, vase or something to hang on the wall. And he said, hang it over your head. And when I'm gone, if there is another life, I will hit you. This vase will fall on your head and I'm still waiting. Well, that's okay. He can do that. That's fine. And that would be a sign. 
but we can't reach out to them. They can reach out to us. How do we know when they reach out to us? When you get banged on the head. <laughs> yes. What about dreaming about the person that's deceased? That's fine. That's fine. Dreaming is one sixtieth of prophecy according to the our sages. So they can relay messages. It's just it's it's often difficult to determine how accurate the message is. It's only one sixtieth of prophecy, so it can be a bit uh, they confusing. But they, they can, they can, yes. My grandmother visited me in a dream. Yeah. It was so real. I know stories. One of my friends from my shul, his grandmother had passed on, and they had given a brisk to their son. And in the middle of the night, the grandmother came to the mum in a dream, and in a panic, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, look after your child. And she woke up, she ran, opened the nappy, full of blood from the bris that day and ran into the emergency ward. So, of course, the dead communicate to us, and that's fine. True stories. Religious family, it's fine. But we can't communicate to them. Okay, next. Anyone else? Jack? Um, why is it that God punished a child's soul by taking it from his father? Very good question. That was David. Yeah, so basically how it works is, is that... Um, that's a complicated question, but children, Torah says, uh, God does not punish the children because of the sins of the fathers, but a child only gets his independence after he's already, like, 13. Before then, he's still just an extension of the father, and the, and the sages teach us the father is responsible for the child's actions, right? Anything happens to the child, the father's responsible. If the child breaks someone else's car, who's going to pay for it? The father. So at that point, where the child's still an infant, it's, it's an extension of the father, and it's considered a punishment for the father if he um, does something wrong, if the kid gets, if the kid gets you know, uh, uh, whacked. But the kid never gets whacked in vain. You see, we're looking at as, we look at it with our human eyes. It's a long, long video of 6,000 years since creation till now. And we're looking at a one little picture in a frame, a little frame, just a picture, a still shot. But it really is a big video. That soul that came in, was only meant to come in for those 23 days, like in the story, because that soul was reincarnated from a different life and had a, had a particular purpose to live again for 23 days. Maybe someone pulled the plug out 23 days early and they're meant to be there for 23 days longer and they didn't. That's why every moment of life is so precious and, and we never pull the plug without asking a halakhic authority because every moment in this world has repercussions for eternity. One second of suffering in this world can take away so much pain in the afterlife and achieve so much of, of reward in the afterlife so everything god does is good and everything is calculated and everything is 100 percent fair and just like i read from that story that when she was there everything was perfect everything was made sense the hungers the wars everything had a perfect reason in fact the ramban sent his his, his student to go and inquire about what's happening when he passed away and the student came back in a dream and said you gave me the questions but when i came upstairs heaven there weren't questions anymore there were no questions so i, I couldn't i couldn't get answers so there's absolute clarity absolute fairness absolute just anyone else the sins of the father not the sons of yeah. generations. if they continue in the father's ways only only if they continue in the father's ways if they do tshuva they don't like Korach, you know Korach when he argues mm-hmm. moshe and the, the, the earth swallowed yeah. him yeah. his children were righteous they were not and we, we see that children can be more righteous than their parents. If the children follow in the father's evil ways, they get whacked, they get punished. If they do tshuva, then they do not get punished. But generally speaking, children are very influenced by their parents, and they, it's very hard for them to change, where their whole life 
they're being conditioned. This is the situation of this is the role of the parent until bat mitzvah, until bas mitzvah, right? It's so important for the parent to condition the child at that point that he shouldn't be just like a, a, a human animal, right? He shouldn't just be self-centered. That he should act with discipline and restraint and with sensitivity and with a broader perspective. So when he turns 13, he has already been molded and conditioned and habituated to to act that way. If the parents just sit on the couch and watch Netflix and leave the kids to do whatever they want, when the kid turns 13, they're just going to be a human animal. It's going to be very hard for them to control themselves. So if the parents are doing the wrong thing, the kids are going to grab them the wrong thing, and it's very hard for them to change. And then they'll get punished. I've only come to take you home.